Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 15th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today we're um, not going to waste too much time with other things. Melissa and I are going on a trip in two weeks and, and um, once again, if anybody along the route through eastern and northern Pennsylvania, east Tennessee, western Virginia, northern Ohio, western Ohio, and um, central Kentucky, and on the way home, I'm, I'm not quite sure yet, probably through um, Tennessee and Alabama. If anybody would like to see us, please send me an email. There are three people so far who have sent emails, and and we will take the time out to at least have coffee or or, or um, lunch or a few hours with them, and and it's our pleasure. And we will be contacting those people soon. Tonight we're going to discuss the epistles of Paul. And part 11 of our series on his second epistle to the Corinthians, this segment is subtitled, Ministers of Satan, because we have some of those, even amongst identity Christians, no doubt. From the early portion of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, from verse 7, Paul of Tarsus has been discussing those men in Corinth who had been causing disturbances within the Christian assembly, boasting and inflating themselves during the troubles that the Corinthians had had in relation to the fornicator, whom Paul discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Doing so, Paul had told the Corinthians that they must look at things according to appearance, asserting that even if his adversaries were of Christ, he was also of Christ, and that the fruits of his ministry, according to the standards of the word of God, are the proof of its legitimacy, while those in Corinth who were opposed to him were only exalting themselves according to their own standards. One aspect of the standards of which he speaks, and which he expected his readers to notice, is the edification of the body of Christ, which had come by his ministry, where he suggests that his adversaries sought the destruction of that same body. He also asserted that his ministry edified and magnified the body of Christ through knowledge of the gospel, while his adversaries took to boasting in others' troubles, whereby they magnified themselves. In the opening verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul of Tarsus had asked that the Corinthians abide with him in a little foolishness. 
It shall become evident later in a chapter that Paul had considered that foolishness to be his having to boast in the fleshly aspects of his own ministry, including both how he had conducted himself in Corinth and the trials which he had suffered in order to perform his ministry in contrast with those who were opposing him. Then Paul made an analogy contrasting the corruption of Eve, which is related in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, with the spiritual purity of the assembly. Doing so, he exhorted the assembly of Corinth to retain its spiritual purity as if losing it would be tantamount to Eve's having lost her virginity to the serpent of Genesis. Explaining this, we had cited several passages, several scriptures pertaining to each side of the analogy. In order for an analogy to be effective, one side of it has to be literally true, while the other side can be allegorical. The corruption of the virgin assembly at Corinth is, of course, the allegorical side of Paul's analogy. The Israel of Yahweh, alienated in the Old Testament, but now being reconciled in Christ in the Gospel, was also presented as a virgin bride to her groom in the words of the prophets, namely in both Isaiah and Hosea. And the theme is also repeated several times in the Gospels. Here we shall proceed with verse 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where we see Paul describe how that virgin bride may be corrupted. For if indeed one coming proclaims another Yahshua, whom we did not proclaim, or you admit a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different good message or gospel, which you had not accepted, would you hold up well? Now, neither the Novum Testamentum Greco, nor the King James Version, nor any other major version, mark verse 4 as a question. The grammar certainly allows us to read the verse as a question, since the verb is in the indicative mood and the particle, which is actually the second word in English, but the first word in Greek, the particle I, which generally means if, is often used as an interrogatory particle. And if men, if indeed, certainly is used as a phrase opening an interrogatory statement or a question. In the context of Paul's other epistles, and according to the first epistle of John, here Paul must have intended this passage as a rhetorical question, or he is found to be in direct contradiction with himself and contrary to the admonitions of the other apostles, such as John. For instance, in Galatians chapter 1, which was actually written a couple of short years prior to this epistle, 
Paul had said, But even if we, or a messenger from heaven, should announce a good message or a gospel to you contrary to that which we have announced to you, he must be accursed. So is Paul really telling the Corinthians here to uphold or bear with those who are preaching other gospels? Since he said in Galatians that those preaching other gospels must be accursed. Yet many of the various popular translations of this passage have Paul doing that very thing here. Again, in the epistle to the Ephesians, which was written at least a year or two after this epistle, in chapter 4 of that epistle, Paul had said, Therefore I summon you, I who am in bonds in the prince, to walk worthily of the calling of which you have been called, with all humility and meekness, with forbearance, having patience with one another in charity, being eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One body and one Spirit, just as you have also been called in one hope of your calling, one Prince or one Lord, if you will, one faith, one immersion, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So if there is one Lord and one Spirit, is Paul really telling the Corinthians here to endure those preaching a different Jesus and a different Spirit? Or is he even saying that they are doing such a thing as some other translations have him? The Apostle John said in his first epistle, in chapter 4, Beloved, do not have trust in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from of Yahweh, because many false apostles have gone out into the society. Paul expressed a similar understanding in Ephesians 4 where he said that there is one body and one spirit, just as you have also been called in one hope of your calling. So is Paul really telling the Corinthians to endure those bearing spirits which are not of Yahweh? Of course, Paul is not doing any of these things, but rather, here in verse 4, he is asking a rhetorical question in a challenge to the Corinthians. He is asking them if they would hold up if someone had presented them with a false gospel, a false Christ, or an alien spirit, and whether they, the Corinthians, would be established enough in the faith that they would be able to withstand any of those things. And then Paul goes on to say, For I reckon in nothing to have been inferior to those most eminent ambassadors. Popular commentaries assume that Paul's Greek here, his reference to those most eminent ambassadors, refers to the original apostles of Christ, but it doesn't. We interpret the phrase, ton hubelion apostolon, 
those most eminent ambassadors as a sarcastic reference to Paul's opponents in Corinth. It is they who are the subject here. It is they whom Paul is addressing here through this letter to the Corinthians. It is they who Paul is confronting here. Paul refers to his opponents as those most eminent apostles, and the remark is certainly sarcastic, as later on in this very chapter he calls them false ambassadors who are transforming themselves into ambassadors of Christ, or apostles of Christ, if you will. And Paul explains that even the servants of Satan transformed themselves into ministers of justice. Then in verse 23 here, he asks in reference to these quote-unquote most eminent ambassadors, are they servants of Christ? Where he makes the parenthetical remark, I speak wandering from reason. Paul certainly did not consider them to be eminent ambassadors at all, and especially not eminent ambassadors of Christ. Here, he is addressing them and using the phrase sarcastically. And that's two things that the, um, that most modern translations, in my humble opinion, fail to ever see in Paul's epistles. The first is rhetoric and rhetorical questions especially, and the second is sarcasm. Further evidence of the truth of this interpretation lies in the very next verse. Paul would not make such a statement if he were contrasting himself to James or Peter or John since it is clear from the Gospel accounts and the book of Acts that none of those original twelve apostles were men who were practiced in the art of rhetoric, for which instruction was given in the schools of the Greeks, and none of the original twelve apostles ever attended the schools of the Greeks. Yet, speaking or comparing himself here in verse 6 to those most eminent ambassadors, which is a sarcastic phrase used to describe his opponents in Corinth. Paul says, and even if unpracticed in speech, yet not in knowledge, but rather in every way being made known in all things to you. Paul depicts himself as a man unlearned in rhetoric or unpracticed in speech, but not unlearned in knowledge, ostensibly meaning a knowledge of the scripture, which is indeed an area where he was well schooled, being trained at the, at the feet of Gamaliel, as it says in the book of Acts. Since Paul had spent a year and a half among the Corinthians in 50 and 51 AD, these things must have been well known to the Corinthians, which Paul is also attesting. Verse 7 to Corinthians chapter 11. Can it be that I have made 
and error. Humbling myself in order that you may be elevated because I have announced the good message of Yahweh to you freely. While Paul was teaching the gospel in Corinth, he had every right to be sustained by those whom he taught. This he outlined in 1 Corinthians in chapter 9, where he said, If we have sown things of the Spirit in you, is it too great if we should reap your fleshly things? If others of authority are partaking of you, still more not we. Rather, we have not used this authority, but we cover all ourselves, in order that we should not give any hindrance to the good message of the anointed. Do you not know that those who in sacred things are laboring from all the temple they eat? Those who are attending at the altar take a share with the altar. Also, in that manner, has the prince appointed those announcing the good message from of the good message to live. But for some apparently unknown reason, and we will probably never know it, Paul had refused such communion in Corinth. In the book of Acts, when Paul had first gotten to Corinth, he had met Priscilla and Aquila, and he immediately took to working at his trade, along with Aquila, to support himself. Where it says, in Acts chapter 18, after Paul had um, been to Athens, After these things, departing from Athens, he went into Corinth, and finding a certain Judean named Aquila, a Pontus by birth, recently having come from Italy, and Priscilla his wife, on account of Claudius ordering all of the Judeans to depart from Rome. He went with them, and because, being in the same trade, meaning Aquila was also a tent maker, he abode with them, and they worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he argued in the assembly hall during each Sabbath and persuaded Judeans and Greeks. So Paul had chosen to work at his trade when he first got to Corinth, as he had also attested in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 6, where he asks another rhetorical question, where he had written, Or do only Barnabas and I not have license to work. Paul had earlier mentioned working with our own hands in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in relation to that same predicament. However, evidently, that alone did not sustain him, or perhaps, and this is quite possible, the conduct of his ministry precluded him from the ability to work for himself for very long. And perhaps, staying in Corinth, he soon found he couldn't work, since here he also admits needing help from outside of Corinth, in verse 8. I have deprived other assemblies, taking provisions for your service, and being present with you and wanting, I had burdened no one. 
Indeed, my need had been filled by the brethren who came from Macedonia. And in everything, I have kept myself and will keep myself unburdensome to you. So Paul must have had some point of contention in Corinth or with the Corinthians that he wouldn't keep, take a dime. Or, or I should say, he wouldn't take a denarian from them. In the Greek world, and this is common in the schools of Greek philosophy and, and teach teachers of rhetoric or, or, or whatever they were teaching, because there were many fields of study then also. In the Greek world, the teachers of philosophy, if they did, they did not themselves come from wealthy families, and some of them did, were often supported both by patrons and by those whom they taught. In the ancient Hebrew scriptures, the Levites, who not only served as administrators and judges, but also as scribes, copyists of manuscripts, and readers of scripture, and teachers of the law in the assemblies each and every Sabbath, they were supported by compulsory tithes. In like manner, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul asserted that Christ had provided that those bearing the gospel should live from the communion of those whom they taught. But that was common of any philosophy or any um, educational discipline, if you will, in the Greek world. So Paul, having been supported to some extent, by the Macedonians while he was preaching the gospel in Corinth characterizes that situation as having deprived other assemblies. Ostensibly, being supported by the Macedonians, Paul may have remained to teach the gospel in Macedonia, but instead he was teaching the Corinthians with that support. Doing this, he makes it a point that he never burdened the Corinthians themselves. And he says here in verse 10, The truth of Christ is in me, that for this reason to boast, this reason to boast shall not be contained in me within the regions of Achaia, meaning that other people outside of Achaia, Paul would... Um, boast that he taught the Corinthians freely. Paul's having brought the gospel to the Corinthians freely and having stayed to teach them for a year and a half without ever requiring anything from them in exchange was indeed a reason to boast. For what purpose? Verse 11 because I do not love you, Yahweh knows. In boasting about things we may do for our brethren, we show a lack of regard for our brethren. So when we do things for our brethren, we keep quiet about it. And as Christ said, when we do our alms secretly, we are rewarded by our God in secret. Contrary to the King James 
version of, of that statement of Christ's. If Paul boasted here, he's telling us in this epistle that it was for reasons of necessity and not because he had lacked love for the Corinthians. Here he insisted that Yahweh God would know that he did love them. Verse 12, But that which I do and I will do in order that I cut off the pretext of those desiring a pretext, at which in that they may boast that they would be found just as we, Paul's opponents, sought a pretext against him. They were trying to undermine his ministry in Corinth and elevate themselves. Evidently, these other apostles to whom Paul refers, those whom were opposed to Paul, had demanded their sustenance from the Corinthians. So while Paul is reluctant to boast that he did not require anything of them, he's telling us that he must boast, so that he can demonstrate to the Corinthians his own sincerity in comparison with those others. If Paul, and Timothy also, had profited from ministering to the Corinthians, they would be no different from Paul's opponents in Corinth. Not profiting from the Corinthians, Paul's opponents have no legitimate complaint against him. They do not have the pretext that Paul seeks to make sure they cannot have. Such as these are false ambassadors, treacherous workers, transforming themselves into ambassadors of Christ. Paul was able to assert that those opposing him in Corinth were indeed treacherous workers simply because they were opposing him. If Paul's ministry was valid, then any other valid minister of the gospel would not be opposed to Paul, even if he had nothing to do with Paul. We see this in the words of Christ, as they are recorded in Luke chapter 9, in verse 49. And John, John the Apostle, and John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he follows not with us. In other words, he wasn't part of the gang, part of the disciples of Christ, part of the twelve. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. An example of this in the relationship an example of this lies in the relationship of Paul and Barnabas. Although Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement over the value of Mark as a fellow worker, Paul thought Mark was lazy, slothful, and for that reason they chose to no longer work together as it's recorded in Acts chapter 15. After they split, they did not attack or seek to discredit one another. 
Paul even continued to give Barnabas approbation, as he wrote of him in his letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and of Mark also, who is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, and in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So Paul disagreed with these men, and we see that ministers of the gospel may disagree over personal issues, not over scripture, that's a difference, over personal issues and still continue to work towards the common goal beneficial to the entire body of Christ. But if men purporting to be servants of the gospel attack the character or persons of others because they disagree with the gospel, they are indeed false ambassadors and treacherous workers. In our opinion, the surest way to detect such deceitful men is simply to listen and see where it is that one side or the other in such a dispute disagrees or disputes with the scripture. Not with the person, with the scripture. That requires diligence on the part of the hearer. Where in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and 8, Paul had described the account he received from Titus regarding the steadfastness of the Corinthians in the faith and their zeal for Paul himself. Paul had also commended them for their diligence. I'm going to offer an example of this problem from my own ministry. As it affects, and I have a few bones like this to pick tonight, as this affects our work in Christian identity today, sadly, if one Christian pastor teaches that all Israel will be saved, which is what the scriptures say in several places, and another so-called pastor says something like, oh no, there are some wicked Israelites who are going to the lake of fire and they're going to burn in hell then he is revealed to be a false ambassador and a treacherous worker. Not because he disagrees with the first pastor, but because he denies the plain word of God found in several witnesses in Scripture. We could argue and not like each other, but none of us should argue with the Scripture. Another example is that if one Christian pastor accepts and exposits on the word of Christ where he says, I and my Father are one. And another attempts to refute that concept, that plain statement of Christ, with a multi-part series of sermons entitled, Oneness Refuted, claiming that somehow Christ and his Father are two or three instead of one where he also attacks the character of the first pastor, then he is revealed to be a false ambassador and a treacherous worker, not because he disagrees with the first pastor or even slanders him, but because he is denying the plain words of Christ, which also have several other witnesses in Scripture. Of course, we ourselves once worked with such a treacherous worker 
who, after we split, had immediately begun attacking our character and our person and doing those very things, contending not with us, but with the scripture itself. While he only pretends to be contending with us, the personal attacks are therefore only a cover for hatred of the truth. Address the gospel. Don't address the other personalities. And when you do, you're fine to be, you're found to be a false ambassador and a treacherous worker. Verse 14. And no wonder, for the adversary himself, or Satan himself, for the adversary himself transforms himself into a messenger of light. Therefore, it is no big thing if even his ministers transform themselves as ministers of justice, of whom the end shall be in accordance with their deeds. Here it may seem that Paul is referring to that Genesis 3 serpent of the event which he employed for the analogy at the beginning of this chapter. However, the reference may also be to the collective adversary, the seed of the serpent. The race is sprung from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil to which the serpent had belonged. Paul of Tarsus saw Satan not merely as an angelic being or a fallen angelic being, but also as an earthly collective. He demonstrates that in Romans 16.20, where he told the Christians at Rome, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. There, he must have been referring to the impending destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans, which was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, and only 13 years after Paul wrote those words were both Daniel's prophecy and Paul's words fulfilled in 70 AD. In an earlier epistle, probably the second earliest of his surviving epistles. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul also displayed this understanding of the collective Satan where he wrote of the son of destruction, he who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. And so he is seated in the temple of God, or of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a God, whose presence is in accordance with the operation of Satan, or the adversary, in all power and signs and wonders of falsehood. And in that passage... The reference to the son of destruction could only be a reference to the Edomite Jews who had taken over the office of the high priest and had held it all through the decades leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem.
those vessels of destruction descended from Esau, as Paul calls them in Romans chapter 9. The epistle of Jude connects apostasy to the same bastards who from the most ancient times had been infiltrating the assemblies of God. From Jude verse 4, For some men have stolen in, those of old, having been written about before time for this judgment, godless men, substituting the favor of our God for licentiousness and denying our only Lord and Prince, Yahshua Christ. These are the same infiltrators whom Paul writes of here in a different way. They were contemporary to Paul, and later in his epistle, Jude points out that they were contemporary to him, serving as a second witness, where he says of those same infiltrators in verses 12 and 13, These are the spots in your feasts of charity, speaking in the present tense feasting together without fear, tending to themselves, clouds without water being carried away by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead being uprooted, stormy waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness is kept forever. Jude's not talking about a singular, satanic, fallen, angelic being. Jude's talking about a collection of individuals alive and breathing and having infiltrated the assemblies of God from the earliest times. The collective Satan. What does Enoch say of the fallen angels? What does Peter say of the fallen angels? that they are shrouded or wrapped or locked or bound in chains of darkness for whom the gloom of darkness is kept forever. Jude's referring to that same entity. It's a collective living Satan. When John said, test every spirit to see whether it's from God, he's talking about embodied spirits the collective antichrist they who deny the Christ they are the antichrist so Paul's not necessarily talking about a single fallen angel here he's talking about a collective Satan the ancient children of Israel were warned not to admit the Canaanites lest they follow after their idolatry. And they admitted them anyway. So it was prophesied that they would be thorns in their eyes and pricks in their sides. Therefore we see that Israel sinned and they were judged for their falling away. In Isaiah chapter 5 we see that judgment does indeed begin with the house of Yahweh. From verse 20, Woe unto them, They call evil good and good evil. That put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore his fire devours the stubble, and the flame consumes the, the chaff, so their root shall be rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of Yahweh of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of Yahweh kindled against his people. Judgment starts in the house of God. And he has stretched forth his hand against them, and has smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now we have these spots in our Feast of Charity, and Christendom continues to be deceived by them until the day comes when Yahweh sanctifies Israel as it is described in Revelation chapter 19. So today we see many evil men preaching many evil things in the name of good. John Hagee, Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, every Jewish rabbi, every follower of Islam, even the popes and priests of the Catholic Church, all pretend to be righteous in the name of the God of the Bible, or at least how they read portions of the Bible. And all of them are ministers of Satan seeking to destroy the true people of God with their works. All of them openly despise the law of God, deny the deity of Christ, and those things alone prove that they are indeed ministers of Satan. They are all ministers of evil transforming themselves into angels of light. Yet they all have plenty of white pastors and priests following them in their deeds. Neither is Christian identity immune to such infiltrators, where we also see certain so-called pastors denying that Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh in the flesh. And many Christians are deceived by these infiltrators at all levels and at all sects of Christianity. So in that manner, the reference to those ministers of Satan could be a reference to anyone who would bear a false gospel and do the work of the enemies of God, even to men who are apparently Israelites, which Paul goes on to indicate here in verse 22. Then and now, this collective Satan has ministers of every race, yet those who do the most damage to the people of God are those of the children of Israel who are in his employ. And with this I'm going to make another digression, which shall serve as an example of the challenges which identity Christians face in this regard. Speaking of ministers of Satan posing as angels of light, I recently had an email exchange with a character, and I'm going to name him, Paul Schlegel. 
Schlegel's a German name. He's probably not a Jew. It's a German name. It means hammer. It was used like Smith of people who worked at foundries. Paul Schlegel is also a fan of the the great impersonator from Chicago, the puzzy little Jew boy. This Schlegel character calls himself Professor Truth. And he has a very high opinion of himself. When I was copied two weeks ago on an email list and noticed that he had referred to so-called Palestinian Christians. Now to me, the phrase Palestinian Christian in the 20th century is an oxymoron. Up until about the 6th, 7th, maybe even into the 8th centuries, a little later, it was a possibility. Today it's an oxymoron because an Arab bastard cannot possibly be a Christian. So when I saw him use the phrase Palestinian Christians, I chastised him for his remarks. Sometimes I do things like that just for sport. He responded with the comment, with the comments that there is much more to scripture than the surface layer. And there is much more to reality than skin color. Get this, in 3D. And he goes on to say, I teach HD, not 3D. And I'm going to address that quackery momentarily. And then he added, I have become aware, for example, of two black-skinned men in a taxi that turned out to be angels as they performed good and just disappeared. So to limit God, he said, so to limit God is quite foolish. Wow, have I heard that one before. With this I had felt that Schlegel exposed himself as a false apostle and a treacherous worker. And I sent him a response quoting this very scripture concerning ministers of Satan who transformed themselves into angels of light. And I also told him, as I think I repeated here before, that the beginning of pride and arrogance is at the point where a man believes that his personal experience trumps the word of God. And I said, you think you saw Negro angels? I tell you, they were devils. And they had persuaded you to disregard the word of God. However, Schlegel rejected my admonitions. And then he only exposed himself even further. He answered, Bill, I have been to the heavens and back more than once. And maybe it was on acid. I don't know. And all I will say is you do not know as much as you think you know. And he obviously doesn't know me because I readily admit what I don't know. And then among other quite arrogant things, he said, here is our conundrum. This is like a call from the Art Bell Show now. Here is our conundrum. I speak Martian and you speak Greek. 
Now, I've never claimed to speak Greek. I can read Koine Greek, but I only speak English. Then he continued, Different realities, my friends. Not even possible to see each other's perspective. And it gets even worse than that, because Paul continued by saying things such as, We share an alpha line, but I jump to the beta lines, or the beta lines. And you are not there. See, we are not even in the same game. Then, he had his own message to me, which he set forth in this correspondence, as if it was from of God himself. And he arrogantly said, Okay, from Father. Get rid of the hate and balance your gifts of wisdom with love. And I would say that you can't love unless you hate. I did not say universalism. Father said love. If you fail this test, and he capitalizes test in, in all its letters, if you fail this test, it is not good, since with what I have given you, you have an unfair advantage. To whom much is given, much is expected. And my first response to that is, Wow. Wow. So it is what Paul Schlegel gives a man which counts. And what Paul Schlegel gives a man even gives that man an advantage with God. Imagine that. This clown, wow, he needs to be made an example of. Paul Schlegel is convinced that he has a direct line from God, and that he is an insider who can somehow persuade God, and that he has esoteric knowledge and special gifts which other men do not have, knowledge and gifts from God which are nowhere mentioned in the word of God. Paul also evidently believes that he dispenses to men those gifts which are from God. What an arrogant ass he is. Instead, the scripture attests that it is Christ who has dispensed the gifts of God. Paul evidently thinks that he is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Schlegel, maybe. Then Paul told me not to limit God, which is a common ploy of many idolaters who seek to define their own God and to write their own scriptures. I am not trying to limit God. But I believe the scriptures and in those scriptures, Yahweh our God has defined himself. And he has also told us that he does not change. Therefore, God limits himself by his word, and men cannot limit God. In the epistle to the Hebrews, Paul of Tarsus wrote, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. In the opening verses of that same epistle, Paul also wrote, On many occasions, and in many ways in past times, Yahweh had spoken to the fathers by the prophets. 
At the end of these days, he speaks to us by a son, whom he has appointed heir of all, and through whom he also made the ages, who being the radiance of the honor and the express image of his substance, meaning that Christ is the radiance of the honor and the express image of Yahweh, and bearing all things in the word of his power, bringing about a purification of sins, has sat at the right hand of the majesty in the heights, becoming so much better than the messengers. He has inherited a name so much more distinguished beyond them. In Hebrews chapter 1, Paul is telling us that the days of the prophets are past. And as Paul of Tarsus also said, Christians have the mind of Christ. It's in the gospel. It's in the Revelation, 1 Corinthians 2.16. It's in the Prophets. It is beneficial that Christian identity has no catechism, because a catechism would prevent us from learning. It would prevent us from refining our knowledge of Scripture. A catechism is limited to the understanding of the men who write it. And other men will indeed come along who are more studied, more blessed, to whom more is revealed, and therefore who have a better understanding. So, our only catechism should be the Word of God unadulterated, or at least as unadulterated as possible. But it is detrimental when interlopers steal in among the sheep and claim to have, and this is the first sign of the clown, this is the first sign of a treacherous worker and a false apostle. When interlopers steal in among the sheep and claim to have esoteric knowledge which is outside of the scripture. We know they are interlopers as soon as they claim to have such esoteric knowledge. Because by that esoteric knowledge, they preach a different gospel. A gospel we have not received from the apostles of Christ. And then, with their esoteric knowledge, they set themselves up as the high priests of their own peculiar and special knowledge. They are no better than the priests of ancient Babylon. Screwy Dewey Tucker, the Chicago impersonator, the Novemberist who constantly promotes things such as 1221-2012 and the coming of Nibiru and other rabbit holes foreboding doom. when Christians should instead seek repentance and the coming of Christ, which forebodes life, not doom. Dewey Tucker, the Chicago impersonator, they're perfect methods of this, that, I'm sorry, they're perfect examples of this method of deceit. 
the claim to have special esoteric knowledge that's outside of the scripture. Paul Schlegel joins them. Paul Schlegel is a treacherous worker and a false apostle, claiming to have esoteric knowledge outside of the scripture, setting himself up as the own as his own high priest of that so-called knowledge, which is really just pure bullshit. Teaching things which they claim come from their own special knowledge, and especially those things they teach which are contrary to Scripture. Doing those things, they themselves ascertain that they are indeed ministers of Satan, But Tucker and Schlegel and the Chicago impersonator are certainly not the only false apostles and treacherous workers which identity Christians must cope with today, and which identity Christians certainly must confront and discredit if we are ever going to stand in the truth of Yahweh our God. Rather sadly, there's a long list of such clowns. We do bad to impugn those who merely disagree with us. But we do good to impugn and to ostracize those who disagree with Christ. They are ministers of Satan, false apostles, and treacherous workers. Now we can return to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 16. Again I say, no one should suppose me to be a fool. Otherwise, even if as a fool you accept me, that I then at least may boast a little. Here Paul once again portrays boasting as something that would be expected of a fool. But he also pleads, pleads that he is not a fool for boasting, for he had already given his reason for thinking it was necessary to boast, which was to cut off the pretext of those who were opposed to him, who would have a pretext to hold against him. That which I speak, I do not speak with authority, but as if in folly. In this, the substance of that reason to boast, since many may boast in accordance with the flesh, then for my part I will boast, referring to the feats of his ministry. The phrase katechorion here is with authority. And most translations have after the Lord, as the Lord, according to the Lord, or something similar. The King James Version and other popular translations always translate kurios as a noun and render it as Lord. While it can be a noun when it is used as a substantive, 
where it is customarily accompanied by a definite article, and here it is not, the word is primarily an adjective. And according to Ludell and Scott, it means having power over or having authority over, ordained. So it could be, curios can refer to something ordained or appointed or regular or proper or legitimate or valid or authorized, among even other things. The phrase katakurion is not such a substantive and therefore does not necessarily reference a person. It is treated here as the adjective which it is. The phrase may have been rendered, I do not speak authoritatively, which is Paul's way of saying that he has no precise scripture to cite in order to support the method which he has chosen to employ in his argument here. Since he is considering himself to be boasting where he is about to describe some of the events of his ministry. He's really only stating the facts. However, Paul believes he is boasting simply by stating the facts of his ministry, which to him is tantamount to what he has done for his brethren. And when we talk about what we've done for our brethren, in reality, we are indeed boasting. The Greek word hypostasis is substance here. The substance of that reason to boast are those events of his ministry. It's confidence in the King James Version. It means, hypostasis means that which settles at the bottom. Sediment. Anything set under another thing. Subject matter. The subject matter of a speech or a poem or a story. The foundation or ground of hope or confidence or assurance. The substance. The real nature of a thing. The substance of Paul's reason to boast is not only his lineage, which he repeats further on, I believe in verse 22 or 23, but also the facts of the events of his ministry, the many things which he had overcome which lend to demonstrate that he is a legitimate apostle of Christ and that his ministry was indeed commissioned from God. Verse 19, For you, being prudent, gladly bear with those those being fools. You bear it if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours your substance, if anyone takes, if anyone exalts himself, if anyone thrashes you upon the face. It may seem as though Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthians here, that they should submit to these things. However, what Paul is saying in verse 19, that you being prudent, gladly bear with those being fools, is only a reflection of the understanding which Christ himself had imparted in the gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. Although here it is also evident that Paul is considering 
anyone who would do such things, anyone who would enslave, anyone who would devour the substance of, or who would take from, or who would exalt himself over, or even anyone who would thrash his brethren, Paul considers to be fools. That's what he's saying here in verse 19. Putting ourselves over our brethren in any of these ways, we put ourselves in a place where only God himself belongs. And therefore, putting ourselves over our brethren by doing any of these things to our brethren, we certainly are acting like fools. We will answer to God from it. The Sermon on the Mount contains instructions by which Yahshua Christ expected Christians to treat one another. None of it is applicable to non-Christians. It is Christians exclusively who are being addressed. Non-Christians are not the enemies of man, but are instead the enemies of God that transcends the relationships of man. They are the enemies of God from whom Christians are commanded elsewhere to separate themselves. From Matthew chapter 5, from verse 38, you've heard it said that it has been an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek Turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asks thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, speaking exclusively of the Christian children of God, that ye may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. So it is evident that what Paul indicates that Corinthians should endure here in verses 19 and 20 are those same things that Yahshua Christ has admonished Christians to endure from their brethren for the sake of Christ, even if, as Paul says, those brethren make themselves fools for their behavior. As a result, if all Christians truly followed Christ, no man would suffer any of these things at the hand of his brother. Verse 21. I speak concerning dishonor as though he had been weak. But with this, should anyone be daring? And he says, in folly I speak, I am also daring. Because he's going to make these daring boasts and withstand and oppose these people. The example Paul makes here is that Christians should humble themselves concerning fleshly things for the sake of their brethren. But on the other hand, Christians should also boldly uphold 
the truth of the gospel and the word of God. Verse 22. Are they Hebrews? I am also. Are they Israelites? I am also. Are they offspring of Abraham? I am also. As Paul said in the opening verse of this portion of his epistle, where he began this discourse in regard to his opponents in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 7, you must look at things according to appearance. If one is confident in himself to be of the anointed, he must reckon this by himself, that just as he is of the anointed, even so are we. From the words of Christ, recorded in John chapter 15, from verse 19, If you were of the world, and the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world the world hates you. Likewise, from Isaiah chapter 49, Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to Him whom man despises, to Him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and He shall choose thee, talking about the children of Israel. The point in John chapter 15, that Yahshua has chosen the children of Israel out of the world. The point of our citing John chapter 15. Here Paul spells out what is expected for one to be of the anointed. As Christ has called his people out of the ancient children of Israel, who alone had been chosen by him. If Christians would make a distinction of themselves, as Paul advised in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that they must do, then they may more easily recognize those spots in their feasts of charity. Verse 22 reflects the requirements for being of the anointed. Are they servants of Christ? I speak wandering from reason. I am even more. Here Paul reveals a sense of humor where he makes a parenthetical remark, I speak wandering from reason, in reference to whether his detractors are servants of Christ. Of course, they are not servants of Christ, or they would not have been his detractors in the first place. However, even if they are somehow imagined to be servants of Christ, Paul, too, is a servant of Christ and had a much greater legacy in his ministry to prove that than anything which his detractors may have done for Christ. So while having to describe the feats and trials of his ministry were considered by him to be boasting, which he, in turn, because he was boasting, considered to be foolishness, he was compelled to do so because of these men who had opposed him.
So Paul is boasting at the same time. He's attempting to be very modest. Paul proceeds to make mention of some of the trials of his ministry, the things he overcame in its fulfillment. In labors, more excessively. In imprisonment, more abundantly. In thrashings, exceedingly. In perils of death, often. And, and the first um, clauses here have several variations in the word order amongst the various ancient manuscripts. The Greek phrase, and thanatois, is perils of death here. Literally, it is only in deaths. Liddell and Scott and Joseph Thayer, in their lexicons, the word for thanatos, or death, describe the idiom that in the plural it means kinds of death or risks of death. So here we have in perils of death. By Judeans five times I have received forty lashes except one, meaning thirty-nine lashes. Three times I have been beaten with rods once I have been stoned. Three times I have been shipwrecked. I had done a night and a day in the deep, meaning in the sea. The word lashes is added to the text here. However, the reference is obvious and Paul could mean little else. The scripture holds the appropriate reference in Deuteronomy chapter 25. If there be a controversy between men, and they come into judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face, according to his fault, by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him, and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee. So, ostensibly the custom was to stop at 39. Of course, the Judeans, denying the Christian faith, may not have been on the side of righteousness when keeping this law, but they still would have kept it. There's only one instance where Paul was, was whipped, and that was by Greeks in Philippi. It is also recorded that he is stoned in that same portion of Acts. We will discuss that momentarily. None of these shipwrecks are recorded in Scripture. The shipwreck on his way to Rome comes after he had written this epistle. In journeys, many times, in dangers of rivers, in dangers of pirates, in dangers from kinsmen, in dangers from heathens, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the desert, in dangers on the sea, in dangers among false brethren. 
The phrase ek genos is from kinsmen here. The Greek word genos is properly race, stock, or family. But it may also be a clan, a house, a tribe, a class, a sort, or a kind. Now there's a word sugenes, which is usually kinsmen, even in the King James Version. That means to be born together with, meaning of the same close family, right? The Greeks often use the word genos, which is basically race, in a narrower sense than we use it today, to mean only a certain distinct portion of the wider race, or sometimes even the descendants of a single individual were described as a genos, or a race. So the children of Israel are a race in that respect, since even though they are now many nations, they are still all descendants of a single individual. Therefore, a race, as the Greeks use the term, can be a portion of another race. And Paul uses the term in that narrow sense here. The phrase ex ethno is from heathens here. The word ethnos, Strong's 1484. The word ethnos was used in the plural in Paul's writings, and we demonstrated this in our presentations on the book of Acts, to describe a collection of peoples of diverse ethnic backgrounds. If there was a group of people of only one nation, they could be named by the name of their nation, or they could be called a laos, a people. If a group of people consisted of individuals of diverse nations, they were called ethnone, the plural of the word ethnos. That's why we have the word ethnone in that sense used of the people in attendance at particular assembly halls of the Judeans throughout the book of Acts. It's not because they're Gentiles. It's because the entire group is composed of people of diverse nations, perhaps Judeans, Greeks, Romans, Syrians. So the word ethnos was used in the plural to describe a collection of peoples of diverse ethnic backgrounds, even when they were gathered together in one place. The popular translations generally ignore that use of the word. Here we may interpret it to describe all of those people who were not of Paul's own genos, which in this context may be limited in scope to the people of Israel in Judea, or even to those of the tribe of Benjamin in Judea, since Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. The term false brethren would refer to Israelites from any tribe, from among the Greeks or the Judeans, who professed to be Christians and instead turned out to have other agendas. Verse 27, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In labors and hardships, often in sleeplessness, in hunger and thirst, often in fasting, in cold and in nakedness. 
apart from the external things hindering me daily is the care of all of the assemblies. Now the Codex Ferianus and the majority text had the first part of verse 28 to read in part, apart from the external things gathering against me daily. Our reading of epistasis, the things hindering me daily, may have been um, translated apart from the external things in my attention daily is the care of all the assemblies. Verse 29, one is weak and I am not weak. One is entrapped and I am not inflamed. If there is need to boast, I will boast of the things of my weakness. Some manuscripts want the word for my in that passage. Yahweh and the Clodex Claromontanus has the God of Israel. Yahweh, even the father of our prince, Yahshua Christ, knows he who is being praised to the ages that I do not speak falsely. In Damascus, the ethnarch of Aretas the king had been guarding the city of the Damascenes to lay hold of me. Then through a window in the basket, I had been let down over the city wall and had escaped his hands. And that's actually the first of the travails of Paul's ministry. And he mentions it here at the last. We have often commented upon the modesty of the book of Acts, where certain events, if they are recorded, are recorded in a very terse manner, and we very concise manner, and we frequently find out later in Paul's epistles that there is much more to the story than we read in the account in Acts. We have also often mentioned the fragmentary nature of the book of Acts, how it only records a relative few of the significant events which took place over a 30-year period between the resurrection of Joshua Christ and the last days of Paul of Tarsus. The commission of Paul of Tarsus is recorded after his conversion in Acts 9.15 where it says in part, For he is a vessel chosen by me, Christ speaking, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. After that time, Paul spent about three years in Damascus, which we learn from Galatians 1.18. It is at the end of that three-year period that we find Paul barely escaping the Judeans in Damascus, which he mentions at the end of his discourse here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and the year is probably 37 A.D. A mere 30 verses in Acts chapter 9 covered a time during which Paul had persecuted the assembly of Christ, his conversion 
the subsequent three years in Damascus and then his going to Jerusalem, his sojourn among the apostles there, and the threats against him for which cause he went to Tarsus in Calicia, and that period alone is roughly four years, possibly a little longer. So we see how the account is very fragmentary and concise. 30 verses and and some detailed events in those 30 verses only covered four years. We have 28 chapters in Acts to cover 30 years. The death of Herod Agrippa I, described in Acts chapter 12, was in 44 AD. Allowing 14 years between Paul's conversion and his appearance in Jerusalem, described in Acts chapter 15, as he attests in the epistle to the Galatians, the visit to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 was in 47 or perhaps 48 AD, and the events of Acts chapter 16 and 17, his travels with Luke, must have happened in 48 and 49 AD. The Edict of Claudius, mentioned in Acts 18.2, was most likely issued in 49 AD. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, most likely in 50 and 51 AD, which can be dated from the tenure of Gallio as proconsul of Achaia, which is recorded in inscriptions. Then, after traveling to Ephesus, Jerusalem, Antioch in Syria, and back to Ephesus by land through Galatia and Phrygia, Paul spent over three years in Ephesus from 53 to 56 AD. Leaving Ephesus and passing through Macedonia, he is now, as he writes this epistle, in Nicopolis in the early months of 57 AD, which is perhaps 23 or 24 years after his ministry began in Damascus. Up to this time, And right now, in the book of Acts, we're at Acts chapter 20, verse 3. That's where we are at right now as Paul writes this. Up to this time, Luke is only recorded as being with Paul and recording the events of Paul's ministry firsthand during the events of Acts chapters 15 and 16 until when Paul had left Luke behind in Philippi, which is recorded at the end of Acts chapter 16. So, ostensibly, Luke met Paul in Antioch and was in Jerusalem with him during the events described in Acts chapter 15 when he met with James, Peter, and John. So until they were reunited in the Troad in the spring of 57 AD, which is recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, just after Paul writes this this epistle, Luke had only actually traveled with Paul 
for about two to three years, no longer, from perhaps 47 to 49 A.D. That's it. While Paul was imprisoned and also suffered beatings during his travels with Luke, many of the things which befell him, which are described here, are not recorded in the book of Acts or in his epistles. Yet Paul's extensive travels certainly afforded many opportunities for all these things to have befallen him. In the ancient world, shipwrecks and encounters with robbers, pirates, and many other more common road hazards were very frequent. Ancient Rome, outside of the cities, was a lot like the Wild West. Especially since Paul traveled long and sparsely populated roads across northern Syria, Cilicia, and central Anatolia several times in his journeys, having to ford rivers on foot or, or on ferry. In Acts chapter 14, Paul was stoned and left for dead in Iconium. In Acts chapter 16, we see that Paul was both flogged and imprisoned in Philippi. But it is a testament to Paul's to Paul's modesty that many of these events are not found in the book of Acts or in his epistles. And here he only mentions them along with an admission that he is boasting because he mentions them. There is enough of a record in the book of Acts of some of these things that we see that Paul is truthful. However, the fact that the book of Acts is focused on the enlightenment of the apostles to the meaning of the ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ, as well as on the spread of the gospel, rather than being focused upon the heroics of the apostles themselves, is a testament to the veracity of the apostles and a monument for Christianity. I will be here tomorrow night discussing the book of Esther. Fraud or fable? Not fact or fiction. Fraud or fable. They're the choices. It's a fraud and a fable. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening and good night.